you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 3 and 4. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Lord Father, we thank you for another morning, another Sunday, another Lord's Day, where we can gather as the Lord's church and worship our Lord. Father, I pray that as we look now into the passages of Scripture that speak on this wonderful ordinance of baptism that was commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give us insight into its beauty, into its relevance for our lives, into its ongoing implications for us as believers, that you would help us to see why Christ has commanded this and what it pictures. God, I pray that you would be working in the hearts of your people this morning. And I pray, Father, that if there are those here who have proclaimed Christ, who have believed upon his name but have not yet submitted to baptism, that they would see the urgency of the matter and they would see their need to do so. Would you help us, Lord, to explore this issue, to understand Scripture's meaning, and to glorify your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, I want to start by echoing what Greg said and uh, thanking everyone who participated in the Micronesian Pastors Conference. Um, I, I think it went very well. I was personally blessed by uh, Pastor Tony Buford and Pastor Rick Holland and their messages, uh, just as someone who was also in pastoral ministry, just hearing a uh, couple of guys who have a, a lot of experience expound on scripture on that subject was a blessing to me personally. I hope it was to the Micronesian pastors as well. So I, I ask and thank you all for praying for them, for praying for that conference. I would ask you to continue to be praying for them. Um, just as Greg said, as they return back home and, and seek to be a blessing to their congregations, we want to be lifting them up in prayer. They are, we are um, joined together with them in Christ. We see them as partners in the gospel ministry, and, and we want to partner with them by supporting them through prayer. Uh, so, brothers, we're, we're glad you're here. Uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you for worshiping the Lord with us this morning. Well, today, as you can tell, we are going to take a week off from our study of the Gospel of John and talk about the issue of baptism. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And one of them, just to be very honest with you, is because with all that we had going on this week and the preparation for preaching yesterday, combined with what we have upcoming in the Gospel of John, a passage that's going to take a little bit of extra care, I thought it prudent not to try to tackle all of those things in the same week. Um, but there's a second reason for that, and this sermon is one that the elders and I had discussed doing uh, several weeks ago. Uh, in an elders meeting, and we've been planning on doing this churchwide when the opportunity arose. For the past couple of years, 
Uh, we have periodically been teaching classes on the subject, the subject of baptism, whenever the need has arisen uh, within the body, whenever there was enough demand for it to justify it at the time. Well, that need has arisen again in our church. There are some in our midst who are considering baptism, and there are some in our midst who are just kind of confused about baptism or asking questions. Um, so after a discussion with the elders, we decided it would be good for all of us as a body to consider this issue together, uh, because baptism is no small thing. It is a command of the Lord Jesus Christ to everyone who believes, and therefore it is, a, it is no doubt a good thing for us as a church to consider its meanings and its implications and even its demands. Baptism is a beautiful part of the Christian faith, and we would all do well to make sure that we understand it. Because this is not just some, some mere ritual that we perform. This is just not merely just some religious rite. Rather, this is a means of our public identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a significant part of the Christian faith. And we ought to all make sure we understand its significance and that we understand its ongoing implications in our lives. Now, with that being said, as no doubt most of you are aware, many Christians, good brothers, do disagree on who should receive baptism and how it is to be carried out. That's just reality. But just because disagreement does exist does not mean that we need to relegate this doctrine to something that doesn't matter all that much. As, as we will see today, this is a direct command from Christ, and it matters. We ought to know what we believe about this and follow the Scriptures with conviction on this matter. So with that being said, this is not going to be a full-blown exposition of Romans chapter 6, though we, we will touch on that passage. But we're going to look at many passages today so that we can assemble the biblical data in order to understand this ordinance, this command. So if you're, if you're looking for an outline, uh, we will spend our time today addressing three main questions. What is it? What does it picture? And who should get baptized? Now, there's, there's overlap in all of those questions, as you will see. You will understand more of what it is by understanding what it pictures and, and who should get baptized. Um, but that gives you a, just a general idea of where we're going today. But my hope for us is that we see that this isn't just some humdrum religious rite that we exercise. But rather, this is an important part of what it actually means to be a Christian. And I hope we all walk away from this strengthened in our understanding, not just of baptism, but even of what it means to be in union with Christ. So let's start with some, some definitions, answering the question, what is it? At a, at, a, at a very base level, baptism simply means to immerse. Now that's, that's not a biased definition. That is simply and lexically what the definition of the Greek word baptizo means. Uh, the Greek term baptizo was not originally a religious term or a technical term at all. It was simply to speak of something that was being immersed or dipped or plunged, typically into water. 
So in the ancient world, you will run across this term, baptizo, used in context like a, a sinking ship. Or uh, when a blacksmith would take hot iron and plunge it, baptize it into water to cool it. Or a dish being baptized in the water to be cleaned. Or even to speak of someone who drowned. It was, it was normal term used in everyday speech. And every time we run into it in the New Testament, uh, it's, it's quite clear that this is the meaning, to immerse. It never means to sprinkle. It never means to pour. Often, both, both contextually and grammatically, it actually can't mean anything other than immerse. Uh, for example, in, in Mark chapter 1, when the people were being baptized by John the Baptist, uh, grammatically, the verb baptized was a passive verb with the people being the subject. Let me explain what that means. Because the, it was the people who were being baptized, the verb is acted upon the subject. It's something that happened to them. So that means if the word meant poured, then it was not water that was poured, it was the people who were poured, which doesn't make sense. If it was sprinkled, it was not water that was sprinkled on the people, it was the people who were sprinkled. John was sprinkling the people, which grammatically does not make sense. Grammatically, it can only be immersed, and that is just simply in keeping with what the word means. But then contextually, we see this too. When Jesus was baptized in Mark 1, it says that he came up out of the water. That kind of language only makes sense for immersion. You see this in Acts chapter 8. When they were being baptized, it says they went down into the water. When they were done, they came up out of the water afterwards. And then even in John 3, we saw that John the Baptist was baptizing in Anon near Salim. Why? Because the water was plentiful there. You don't need a place with plentiful water if you're sprinkling everybody. You, I could sprinkle you all here with about a bowl full of water. The same with pouring. You don't need a place that's pl with plentiful water. No, it was immersion. And this is why they went to places like the Jordan River. The reality is, the practice of sprinkling and pouring was foreign to the New Testament. And the historical data seems to show that the early church, after the first century, practiced immersion. And almost no scholars even tried to debate that. Even guys like our beloved Luther and Calvin and Richard Baxter and others who baptize babies acknowledge this. And Luther said, The name baptism is Greek. In Latin, it can be rendered immersion when we immerse anything in water that it all may be covered with water. And then he said, Although that custom has now grown, grown out of use. Calvin said, The very word baptize however, signifies to immerse. And it is certain, says Calvin, that immersion was the practice of the ancient church. Baxter, same thing. In the apostles' time, the baptized were dipped overhead in water. Now, my question for these guys is, then what are you doing? But the reality is the practice of sprinkling and pouring came later in church history, and likely it arose, historic records seems to indicate that it probably came up as a way to accommodate baptizing babies, infant baptism. A practice that's also foreign to the scriptures and to the early church record. 
Now, for that reason, and for many other reasons that we're going to get into today, uh, this is why we believe in what is called credo-baptism. That is, believer's baptism. Baptism based upon one's creed, what one believes, as opposed to pedo-baptism, which is infant baptism. Okay, so that's that's from a sheer mechanical standpoint. The word means immersion. We get that this is immersion, immersion but, but what is it? Why is this important? Well, first and foremost, it is a command, an ordinance, given to us by Christ himself. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples, and he issued his marching orders for the church in one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture, the Great Commission. And he says this in Matthew 28. He says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, whatever else we say about baptism, this alone ought to tell us that this is no small issue. This is a direct command from the Lord Jesus Christ after His resurrection, after declaring that He has all authority. Now, it's important to note that contrary to what we've been seeing in the Gospel of John with all these false disciples, post-resurrection, after the resurrection, the term disciple was always used synonymously with a Christian. So when Jesus says to make disciples, he is talking about Christian. A Christian is a disciple, a disciple of the resurrected Christ. A Christian is one who has given themselves to following the resurrected Christ, to submitting to His Lordship, to obeying all that He commands. Now, there are some who try to make the case that discipleship is some kind of second-tier Christianity that uh, happens when you just become mature. They're, They're absolutely dead wrong. That is not what the Scripture teaches. You actually cannot be and are not a Christian if you are not a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as a convert who's not a disciple. And this is why, all through the book of Acts, the Christians are simply called the disciples. Now, with that being said, understanding that, the question we must ask here is, well, then how then do we make disciples? How do we create new disciples? Well, being that we are not making disciples of ourselves, we are seeking to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way by which that is achieved is through the preaching of the gospel. When we preach and proclaim the person and work of Christ, those who believe, those who repent and trust in Christ, bend their knees to His Lordship, are those who have become disciples. We see this quite clearly in the book of Acts. In fact, there's, there's only two places in all of Scripture where we see this, this active verb, make disciples. Only two places. One is the Great Commission, which we just read, and the other is in Acts chapter 14. 
with Paul on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. It says this in Acts 14, 21. It says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. When they had preached the gospel and made many disciples. The making of disciples came through the preaching of the gospel. Those who believed this good news became disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the means of the building of the church that is continuing on into this day. But along with that, once a disciple is made, there is something that you must do with them. And that's what Jesus is telling us in the Great Commission baptizing them in the name of the Holy Trinity, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that He commanded. Those two things are what marks a Christian. That they have been baptized and that they live their lives in submission to the Lordship of Christ. That they observe all that He commanded. The Bible actually has no category for a believer who refuses to be identified with Christ through baptism, or a believer who does not seek to live out what Christ commanded. To be a Christian is to be someone who publicly identifies with Christ through baptism, and it is to be someone who seeks to conform their lives to His, to live according to His ways and not ours. One of those is initiatory, and the other is lifelong. But you cannot in any way claim to be living out the second if you have not submitted to the first. You cannot be claim to be living an obedient life to Christ if you will not submit to the very first thing that Christ commanded of a new believer, which is to get baptized. This is why, in the Scripture, often you see that that conversion and baptism just go together. They're just there together. Uh, To have faith in Christ is to express that through baptism. We see this over and over and over in the book of Acts. In fact, let let me just take you through a few passages, then I want you to just notice the pattern of what those who believe do immediately. Starting in Acts chapter 2. After hearing the Apostle Peter's sermon in Acts 2, the Jews ask, What shall we do? And Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.41 says, So then those who received his words, those who received his words were baptized. And they they were added that day about 3,000 Souls. In Acts chapter 8, it says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. In Acts chapter 9, speaking of the Apostle Paul after he was blinded by his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, Ananias came and laid hands on him. And then it says this in Acts 9.18, And immediately, something like scales fell off his eyes, he regained his sight, and then he rose and was baptized. 
In Acts chapter 10, the Gentile house of Cornelius hears Peter preach the gospel, and the entire household believes, and then it says this in verse 47. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And then he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 16, 14. Paul preached the gospel in Philippi to a woman named Lydia. And it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well. Acts 16, 32. The Philippian jailer says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Acts 18.8, Paul preached to the Corinthians, and it says, Crispus, the ruler of the Jews, believed in the Lord together with his entire house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. I mean, you see the extent of this pattern, and I even left some out. This pattern was clear in the early church. To believe immediately resulted in expressing one's belief through baptism. One's belief in Christ is expressed through baptism. And over and over, it was applied immediately to those who believe. Now, just, just as a side note here, our Pado baptist brothers will often appeal to those passages, many of which I just read, actually, I think I read all of them, that mention entire households being baptized in order to make a case for infant baptism, which, to be honest, I think is just absolute grasping at straws. Because there's no instance in all of Scripture of an infant explicitly being baptized, not one. And so that because of that, they, they try to read those into those passages. And it's, it is an assumption to say that just because a household is mentioned, that it includes infants. I mean, think of all of the households that are represented in this room. It's only a small minority of you that still have infinite infants in your household. But the textual problem for them is this. There's actually there's four cases in which entire households are baptized. Not one of them is an infant mentioned. And three of them, it makes it clear that the entire household heard the gospel preached. In two of those cases, it makes it clear that the entire household believed the gospel. The only one that, that speaks in shorthand is the one referencing Lydia. And I think the pattern of acts of hearing, believing, and being baptized should cause one to logically conclude that her whole household heard the gospel believed it, and were baptized. Not that they were baptizing unbelieving infants in her household. Uh, to be frank, I think that's a pretty silly argument. Now, what we see in the book of Acts is a carrying out of what Jesus com commanded in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, baptizing them, baptizing the disciples, baptizing those who believe. This is, this is how the church was founded, and this is how the church now continues. We make disciples by proclaiming the gospel. Those who believe are baptized, and then we spend the rest of our lives teaching and learning all that Christ has commanded. And that, that's what we're doing every Sunday. That's what we're doing right now. 
Now, before we dive on and in, dive into um, its meaning, we need to ask the question of whether or not baptism plays any role of contribution in our salvation. Must we be baptized in order to be saved? Or as many believe, is baptism the means by which God's saving grace or regeneration is given to an individual? The term for this that's often used is baptismal regeneration. Many groups, including Roman Catholics, the Church of Christ, Mormons, and others hold to this view, that it is baptism that actually saves. Now, obviously, if you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that we are Protestant Baptists in the Reformed tradition who hold staunchly to the doctrine of sola fide, that salvation is by faith alone. And that is taught everywhere in the New Testament. As we have seen, as we've been progressing through the Gospel of John, you can't make it a chapter in the Gospel of John without being confronted with the need to believe for salvation. And just take the, the most well-known verse in all of John as an example. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's not whoever is baptized, it is whoever believes. Another place you see this, sola fide, Acts 16, when Paul is speaking to that Philippian jailer, the jailer yells out, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Full stop. No requirement for baptism. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Again, Paul makes this very clear. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the scripture is, is clear all over that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not through our works. It is not through what we do. And therefore, it is not through baptism. It is through faith in Christ. Now, with that being said, this is not at all to say that baptism is then therefore optional. There's, there's actually a great irony in being a Baptist, being called a Baptist, because though we bear the name of the ordinance in our tradition, we have a habit of downplaying the need for baptism. And because we want to distance ourselves from those who believe it to be necessary for salvation. But baptism is not optional. In fact, you need to understand that, the, as I said, the Bible does not have a category for an unbaptized believer. Now, I'm sure many of you are thinking, as we Baptists like to point out, well, what about the thief on the cross? Yes, without question, the thief on the cross is a clear demonstration that baptism is not necessary for salvation. That salvation is by faith alone. For Jesus told him that today you will be with me in paradise. That man was never baptized. But there is a massive difference 
between someone who cannot get baptized and someone who will not get baptized. Massive difference. And very few believers in history, some have, but very few have been in a similar position to the thief on the cross. His example does not show us that baptism is optional. Baptism is the initiating expression of one's faith, carried out in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Said another way, it is the objectivity of faith. It is one's subjective belief expressing itself in an objective manner. It is one demonstrating in an outward display that they have inwardly trusted in Jesus Christ. And this is why you often see passages that speak of baptism as if it is just part of the whole salvation package because it is, it is used as a stand-in for faith. It is used to speak of what it represents. So passages like 1 Peter 3.21, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Or Acts 2.38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. These passages are not teaching that baptism is the means of salvation. They are not meant to be taken literally that baptism saves They're not contradicting the rest of the Bible and the gospel that says that we are saved through faith alone in Christ alone, not of works. It is simply that baptism, rather, is used as a stand-in for what it represents. Baptism is how one expresses that they believe. It's how their faith is objectified. So Peter, calling them to get baptized is not calling them to get baptized because the act of baptism saves them, but because the faith that moves one to get baptized is what saves them, is how they come to Christ. By calling them to repent and be baptized, he's he's basically just saying repent and believe. Because again, in the New Testament, there's no such category for an unbaptized Christian. This is what Christians do. Now, for a broad definition, new believers obey Christ and identify with Christ in baptism as an initiating rite in the Christian faith and a public profession of their subjective faith. Say it again. New believers obey Christ and identify with Christ in baptism as an initiating rite in the Christian faith and a public profession of their subjective faith. This is what Christians do. So with that being said, broadly speaking, understanding what it is, let's now think a little bit more deeply about its, about its meaning, about what it pictures. Because the question still remains. You could still ask the question, well, why baptism? Why this act? Specifically, why baptism by immersion? Okay, it's the initiating rite by which one identifies with with Christ. Okay, I, I get that, but why this? Why not a million other rituals that could have been assigned and performed as an initiating rite? Why this one? Well, this is why understanding its meaning is, is so important. Because in this, you will see the wisdom of God in prescribing this as the initiating rite. And the fact is, 
Baptism is actually multifaceted in its meaning. As one guy put it, he said it's like a diamond that you just have to keep turning to see all of its beauty. There's, there's actually a lot being communicated in the act of baptism rightly executed. But beyond the, the initiatory rite the, of, of the objective expression of one's faith, I want to give you three meanings that are communicated in the picture of baptism. First is it represents our washing and cleansing from sin. This is the very promise of the new covenant, that God would cleanse us all from all of our uncleanness. Ezekiel 36, that our sins will be remembered no more. Jeremiah 31, when, when we are born again, we are washed and cleansed from our sin, and that is pictured in baptism. In fact, when the Apostle Paul was recounting his conversion in Acts 22, he recounted what Ananias said to him as he was calling him to believe. And it says this in Acts 22, Ananias said to Paul, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Again, by this, using this language, Ananias was simply calling Paul to believe the gospel and to express his faith through baptism, which pictures the washing away of one's sins. And that was, that was the promise of the new covenant, which was accomplished, as Jesus said, by His blood. His substitutionary sacrifice is what brings about our forgiveness, the washing away of our sins. What can wash away our sins? Amen. And that's not just a catchy tune. That's Revelation 7:14. All of them who cleansed their robes had washed them in the blood of the Lamb, as we sang about this morning. And that washing picture is pictured for us in baptism as one goes down into the waters and comes up. Second picture. Baptism represents our baptism into the church. Paul makes it clear that when we are saved, we receive the Holy Spirit, and we are baptized, as it were, into the church universal. We are immersed into the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says this, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. To be a Christian is to be a part of the church. It is to be baptized into the church universal. And so then water baptism represents that reality in a physical way. On a local level, physical baptism welcomes one into the local body of Christ. It is a public proclamation on the part of the one getting baptized that I no longer belong to the world or am a part of the world, but I'm one of you. I'm a part of the body of Christ. And you see this in Acts 2.41. Those who received His word were baptized and were added that day to the church in Jerusalem. About 3,000 of them. This is why 
Baptism is actually a requirement for church membership. You must be baptized to be a part of the church. Third, and I think the foremost picture, the supreme picture of baptism is our union with Christ. And this is what we see in Romans 6 and Colossians 2, beautifully expressed. Neither one of those passages is speaking about water baptism, actually. Rather, they are speaking about what happens to someone at conversion. In conversion, we are immersed into Christ. We become in union with Him. And it says that we are baptized into His death as a result. And we are baptized into His resurrection. Even Jesus spoke of His death as a baptism in Mark chapter 10. And when we come to Christ, we are baptized into union with Him, both in His death and in His resurrection. Listen again to Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we are converted... Our union with Christ is such that His death becomes our death. And His resurrection becomes our resurrection. And only the immersion of a believer can rightly picture that. When one goes down into the water, they have gone down into a watery grave. They, they have died. It is picturing the fact that they have died with Christ for that moment that they are under the water, you see them no more because the old man is dead. And when they are brought back up out of that watery grave, it is a picture of their having been raised with Christ. They are now a new creation in Christ Jesus, having been raised with Him to walk in newness of life. And water baptism pictures that beautifully. It's because of that reality what happens to us at conversion, that Paul is able to speak in the way he does in Galatians 2.20. He, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I don't remember Paul on the cross. No, we all have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When Christ was crucified, you who are in Christ were crucified with Him. When Christ was buried, you who are in Christ were buried with Him. And when Christ was raised, you who are in Christ were raised with Him. And when you are baptized, you are declaring it to the world that that is so in your life. Infant baptism can never tell that story. Only the baptism of a believer through immersion. Baptism is a beautiful and wonderful picture of what God has done for His people through Christ. But this is why it has ongoing implications. 
If you get into the waters of baptism, you are saying that you have died with Christ. This is Paul's whole argument in Romans chapter 6. If you've died with Christ, you've died to this world. You've been crucified to this world. You are dead to sin. And therefore, you are to live in obedience to Christ. Your baptism is making a statement of how you should live for the rest of your life. Further, you are proclaiming that you are part of the universal body of Christ by faith. This is why there's no such thing as a believer who's not a part of the church. You will, not find, you will look in vain in the New Testament for a believer who's not, who's not part of a church. To be a Christian is to be a part of the church. So when you, when you get baptized, when you proclaim that you are in Christ, that has ongoing implications for your life. You have made a declaration of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, and you are to live that out. Now, with all that being said, having seen the beauty of the picture of it, I want to answer one last question, which we've answered in many ways already, but I want to explore this question a little bit further just for some help. Who should get baptized? And I want to explore this both doctrinally and then very briefly practically. Now, doctrinally, as Baptists, the answer to this question almost sounds absurd in our context. But the answer is simple. It's what we've been saying. Only believers should get baptized. Only those who have been born again. That's, that's clear in an established pattern of the New Testament, and that's, that's directly what Jesus commanded in the Great Commission. And, and to most of our ears, that just sounds totally obvious. But to our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters and many other denominations, they would obviously take issue with this. And they would, in fact, advocate for the baptism of infants. And I want you to understand why. And I want to explain it to you so you're not just baffled why guys like R.C. Sproul and Kevin DeYoung and, and men who we love and respect and revere as brothers in Christ, why are you baptizing babies? I, I, I think they're in grave error, but they do have their reasons for it. They do not baptize babies for the same reason as Roman Catholics. Let, let that be said out of the gate. Roman Catholics believe there's an infusion of righteousness uh, at baptism, uh, that that is the grace one receives, and, and it is according to that grace that they're to live out their salvation. So the Roman Catholic Church believes baptism is salvation, necessary for salvation. Presbyterians, Anglicans, and historic Congregationalists, the Conservatives, even though they are baptizing babies, they do not believe baptism saves. Um, so we're, we're not, we're, they're not in violation of sola fide. Rather, what they believe is that baptism is the sign of the new covenant in the same manner that circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. And there is actually truth in what they are saying. In the Old Testament, there was, there was two types of circumcision. There was physical and there was spiritual. Now, the physical was ritualistic and ethical in nature, meaning it was an outward ritual, an outward sign that created a physical identification for the people of God. Now, the first place we see this is introduced uh, is with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 17. God says this, Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, 
and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So even though this was merely ritualistic and outward, you can see how important it was. It was the sign of belonging to that covenant community. But we know that even in the Old Testament, this sign did not save. It was actually a pointer, an outward reality that was pointing to an inward demand. See, God was always after a type of circumcision, but it was a spiritual circumcision. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and to keep His commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you this day for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the heavens of heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. Yet the Lord has set His love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are on this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart." And be no longer stubborn. That's what God was after. Circumcision physically was an outward sign that represented a required inward reality. The circumcision of the heart. The the cutting off of that which was opposed to God. The sinfulness of the human heart. And because of that, you had a people in Israel who had received the outward sign of the covenant, but did not have the inward reality. You had a people that belonged to the community, but they were not really saved. They were not regenerate. Well, our Pado-Baptist brothers come to the New Testament, and they say that the, the covenant of Abraham was not nullified. Those who are born to believers are now born into the covenant community, and just like the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Christians should receive the sign of the new covenant because it merely points to that which is required. Now that that sounds logical. But the question to be answered by this is, are the children of believers a part of the new covenant community by virtue of having Christian parents. And we as Baptists would say, absolutely not. And for good reason. There's two fundamental differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that speak to this, that make this clear. First, the Old Covenant was itself based upon lineage. Meaning it was given to the Jews, the Jewish people as a people. They were born members of the covenant because they were the physical children of Abraham by the flesh. This is why, as we're going to see in John chapter 8, all this boasting the Jews have been doing, they're about to boast in their lineage as well. They're going to boast in the fact that they're children of Abraham, that they are Jews, part of God's covenant community. The new covenant, however, is not based upon lineage, but it is based upon faith. No one is born into the faith. No one is born into the new covenant. But we would actually agree with them 
that the Abrahamic covenant is not nullified, but rather it is fulfilled in Christ. And now because of that, the Scriptures declare that the true children of Abraham are not ethnic Jews, but rather they are those who follow in the ways of Abraham. They follow God in faith. Galatians 3.7 says, Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If you're a Christian, you are a son of Abraham. And you became one when you believed. The Abrahamic blessings are yours through Christ. So in a way, I agree with them that newborns should receive the sign of the new covenant. But that is those who are newborn spiritually, not of the flesh. As John says in John 1, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those should receive the sign of the new covenant. Those who have been born of God, born again, born from above. Second difference beyond the new covenant not being based on lineage is the nature of the new covenant. Now I want you to listen to God's description of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, which as we saw from Hebrews when Greg read it, this is what Christ mediated, mediates now. It says this, God says, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. You see, in the new covenant community, no longer will we have to implore those within the covenant to know the Lord. The old covenant community did. They had to press their neighbor and their brother to know the Lord because not everyone, and dare I say most, of Israel born into that old system did not know God. Now just, just read the history of Israel. Yes, they were born into the covenant community and received the covenant sign, but they did not know God. And they had to be implored, know the Lord. But those who are born into the new covenant, who have been born again, born from above, know God. They are born knowing God. And therefore, none of us has to tell our neighbor in the new covenant, in this covenant community, to know the Lord. Because all of us, from the greatest to the least, know God. As, as Peter says, we are we are now a chosen nation. Not chosen not on a nationalistic and ethnic level, but chosen on an individual level who corporately make up this new race of people, of people who know God. The fact is, Paedo-Baptists actually stumble over the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, and they have to say that it's only partially fulfilled. That what Christ has mediated has only come into partial fulfillment because they have a church full of baptized unbelievers that they have to implore to know the Lord. But that reality, the new covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. It is here and it is now. And that is why the only people who should be getting baptized and receiving the sign of the new covenant are those who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and have been born again. So then I will end with this just practically speaking. 
How do I know if I should get baptized? How do I know if I've been born again? And this is sometimes a, a, a difficult matter of discernment uh, with our children as parents. Uh, parents, we certainly want to call our children to, to believe, but we don't want to shove them into the waters of baptism to make ourselves feel better before they understand what they are doing and can make this choice on their own. And they need to make this decision. They need to make this decision not because they want to be like Dad, but because they want to obey Jesus Christ. And the reality is, children typically affirm what parents believe, what parents affirm. Most of the time, you, you see this in all kinds of areas of life. You, you see them take on the same political values. You see them root for the same sports teams. You, you see them take on the same vocations and same interests as Dad. That means we have to be really careful with our children. Kids, your faith has to be your own. You need to trust in Christ. You will not enter the kingdom of God because your parents trust in Christ. You will not ride into the kingdom of God on your father's coattails. You have to come to Christ for yourself. And getting baptized won't force the issue. That will not make you a Christian. You get baptized because you have believed, because you have become a Christian, not in order to become a Christian. So this is a matter of, of, of wisdom that we need to uh, implore here. But let me give you some questions that you can ask yourself, no matter what age you are. I'm not just talking to children at this point. That will help you discern whether or not you've been born again. First, have you come to realize your need of a Savior? Meaning, do you see the darkness of your sin against the Holy God? And do you see your own personal need of forgiveness for your sin? If so, then are you trusting in Christ and in Christ alone? Not in your own merit, not in anything that you've done, but in Christ, in His merit, and what He has done for your salvation. Do you now have a hatred for sin and do you desire to repent when you do sin? Do you now desire to live your life in obedience to Christ as your Lord? Do you have a love for God and are you in pursuit of Him? Do you desire to know Him? Do you love God's people? Do you love the church? And do you cherish His Word and the preached Word in the church, in your heart? If you can answer in good conscience yes to those questions, and that is evidence that God has done a work in your heart, that you are believing upon Christ, you're trusting in Him, and if you're trusting in Him, then I would urge you to obey Christ and publicly identify with Him and profess your faith in Him through baptism. Show yourself to be a Christian. Come out, as it were. Do not delay. Submit to Christ. Profess your faith. Join the church and give your life to living out all that He has commanded of you. That is what it means to be a Christian, that you have identified with Him in baptism and that you are living your life in pursuit of Christ 
submitting to his lordship because there is nothing else that matters. It is all of Christ. If anyone would like to discuss these matters in your own life, if you're trying to discern these things for you, if you're a parent and you would like to talk this through with a pastor, please reach out to any one of us, myself included. We would be happy to seek to shepherd you through that as you're walking through it. With that, let's pray. Father, you have done great things for your people. You have done what the law could not do. You have done what the old covenant could not do. You have sent your son that he may secure our salvation and live out on our behalf perfect righteousness and bestow that upon all who believe. Thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection. And thank you for our union in him through faith. God, I pray for those here who have been wrestling with this issue, that this would be the moment in their life where they decide to walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, to express their faith, to express obedience to Christ, and to get baptized and submit their lives to his lordship. Lord, would you be working in hearts this morning, in kids' hearts, in parents' hearts. Father, would you be moving your people towards obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this last song of song.